All right, if you have your Bibles, grab them. Romans chapter 11. We continue to make our way through the book of Romans. This morning, we are going to really focus on the end of the chapter of Romans chapter 11. Uh, really, verses 33 through 36, mostly because the ideas earlier in the chapter are really a lot of ideas I kind of talked about and covered in Romans 9 and a little bit in 10. The thrust of that part of the chapter that I'm not really going to cover today uh, is really essentially this, that the Jewish people have been hardened against the gospel. They are re- they've rejected Jesus as the Messiah, but God is preserving a remnant of them for himself, meaning that there are some Jews that believed, uh, you know, like Paul and the, the disciples and some others uh, that believed. And some at point in the future, there will be more Jews whose eyes will be opened and they will come to Christ. However, now, Paul makes the point clear, I think, that the true Israel, the true people of God are not those descended from physical Israel, but those who belong to the true Israel who are those in Christ. So that said, we're going to zoom in on verses 33 through 36. So Romans chapter 11. Paul writes in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and he pins these words. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him, And through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. So for three chapters now, Paul has been talking about, for him, this incredibly difficult subject. That God's word will not return void and God will have mercy on whom he wants to have mercy and he will save people but they, they can only be saved through the hearing of the gospel and that they will only hear if someone preaches it to them. And his people, the Israelites, by God's grace, will one day hear that message and by God's mercy hear it and believe it. Uh, but for right now, they have not. And that has burdened him, he said in Romans 9, that he would, be, he would wish he could be cut off from Christ if they would be saved. So he's talked about these hard, difficult things. And he concludes these chapters with, Really a hymn, a song, a section of praise, a section of worship to God. It is almost as if when he gets to this point, he he cannot contain himself any longer and his emotions get the best of him as he is dictating this letter to someone else who is writing and he bursts out into song. I grew up and kind of cut my teeth in church at the height of what has been marked and called the worship wars. My early church experience as a teenager was marked by the fights over music, over style and over lyrics and whether or not choruses were too repetitive, those 7-Eleven songs, over why those older people couldn't worship to the new songs and why those younger people couldn't worship to the old songs. And it created all sorts of bitterness in us and all sorts of anger. And so many churches split over music and all of, there was all kinds of selfishness on all sides. But through all of that fighting and all of that posturing and theologizing about worship music and what was best and what you were missing if you didn't have this song or that song, what we actually missed in that worshiping was God. 
I think we were too consumed about our own preferences and what we thought was right and good. We were so self-absorbed that we missed out on worship because our attention was on the means by which we worshiped God and not on the object of our worship was God. Our attention was on how we worshiped and not who we worshiped so often. And so Paul's transition here from, in chapter 11 from these three chapters in this text, his, tradition, his transition is really from theology to doxology, which is from doctrine to worship. And it helps us resign our hearts to say that all that we do should drive us to center our lives and worship King Jesus. All of our efforts and whatever they are should at the end of the day drive us to worship. I think this text really shows us five principles for worship. Five things that it teaches us about worship. Verse 33 says, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and of the knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments and untraceable his ways. The first thing we learn about worship is that everything God does should lead us to worship. Everything God does, everything he is about, everything he does should lead us to worship. So just how deep is God's wisdom? His knowledge and how un, um, unimaginable and amazing are the things that he does is really what Paul is saying. Well, consider this. God is so brilliant, so wise, so beyond us and our comprehension that he takes the greatest act of human rebellion, the greatest act of human disobedience, the greatest act and the greatest moment of human arrogance, and he uses it to save us. The greatest act of human rebellion was when they murdered Jesus on this Roman cross. This greatest act of human evil, the greatest example of human arrogance and foolishness, and yet God takes that greatest mistake of ours killing the Son of God, and somehow uses that mistake by the, to be the means by which he saves us. The cross is simultaneously the expression of our rebellion and the instrument of our salvation. The irony of the gospel is that we live through the death of the God we murdered. Oh, how unsearchable are your ways, O oh God. Who but God would think of that? Who but God could accomplish that? Who but God? And so Paul ends his praise with a line we would do well to remember. In verse 36, he says, For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Which means that everything in all of creation, from people to sunrises, to those weird fish at the very deepest parts of the ocean, to our temporal suffering, to our joys, and even the devil himself all serve one singular purpose, to make much of Jesus, to magnify his glory, and to show the fame of Jesus across the whole world. The singular purpose of the entire universe is the glory of God. Anything less than that is idolatry. And once we understand that, we begin to understand that even 
a love of God toward us. That even God's saving of us, even Jesus dying in a sinner's death, the primary motivation of our salvation is that we would look at a God who would choose to, to, to send such a loving and gracious, to send his son to bear the wrath for us. The primary thing in that is for his own glory. To make much of him. Salvation's first intention is to increase the fame and show the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. You know, we were created with this purpose. Paul David Trev, a pastor and theologian, said it this way. He says, we humans are glory junkies. We constantly search for something to adore, some athlete's skill, someone's intelligence or artistic ability, someone's strength of character, their superhuman endurance, their riches. We want something to adore. We want something to admire, something to have ultimate worth and value, worthy of our devotion. And God has been trying to show us from the moment we were born, that he and he alone is that thing. That thing that our hearts will look at and our hearts were made to adore and cherish. And so God shows us through every sunrise, through every sunset, through every cool morning breeze. He shows us through the amazing creatures we see every single day, through the stars that we look up to at night, that we should, through these things, see the wonder of creation and burst open with praise of how glorious God is. But ultimately, and most clearly, he shows us his glory through the gospel. So much so that the book of Hebrews tells us that the angels... That the angels long to look into the gospel. Which is so fascinating to me, right? These angels who are in heaven, who are with God, who are walking on the streets of gold, who are in all of the glory and all the things that are amazing about heaven, are longing for something they cannot have. Are longing to understand more deeply Something they are lacking, which is to understand redemption in the gospel, to look into it, to know it, and they can't. Because they weren't fallen like us, and they've never been redeemed. And so they'll never experience it. But we do. We see it. We feel it. We know it. And it should make us burst open with praise. Praise to a God who would take our evil mistakes on himself to save the world. Augustine said, the beauties of the world are only like the ring that a groom gives his fiancée. The ring is beautiful and valuable, and the girl who receives it will doubtlessly find herself staring at it. She will show it off to her friends. She will take pictures about it. She's going to post it on the internet. You know, she's going to hold her chai tea latte and make sure the ring is in the picture that she takes. So that everyone sees it and beholds how beautiful the ring is because she loves it. But how tragic it would be if she ever got so enamored with the ring that she forgot the ring giver. That she would forget that to which the ring points. The love and commitment of a husband who is the real treasure. In the same way, 
the beauties of creation. Nature, art, romance, food, sports, dessert, a filet mignon cooked medium rare. Amen, let's go. Coffee. Right? The Bengals winning a Super Bowl one of these days. Everything. She don't she walking out cuz I said that. She's going to be mad at me later. All of these things that we should enjoy them all, but never forget to where they are pointing us. They never point to themselves as an end, but they point to a glorious God, a glorious gift giver who is magnificent that should cause us to praise him. We should eat that steak, medium rare flaming on it, and it should spiral up into greater enjoyment because we know the gift giver who gets all the glory. Sometimes we miss it, though. Sometimes we miss it. C.S. Lewis said it this way. He says, we're like dumb animals. Like if you try to sometimes tell your dog, if your dogs aren't as smart as Bruce's dogs who he trains, if your dogs are smarter than that, when you are not as smart as that, you point, you say, go get the treat. Go get that thing I throw on the floor. And what do they do? They just look at your finger. Right? And they, they lick your finger and smell your finger. They're like, no, go get that thing. And they're like, no. Oh. They forget the, the finger has trajectory. It's pointing to something else. And in the same way, we just look at the thing. We just look at the thing and we miss where it's pointing us. We miss where it's pointing away, the trajectory. It's saying God has given this thing. It is a good thing because God has given it. And we give glory to him, not the thing, but to him. Everything God has done and everything God has made is meant to lead us back to him, to the true architect, the true painter the true masterpiece. Worship cannot happen until you understand that the point of everything is God himself. He is the end. He is the trajectory. He is the purpose. He is the reason. He, everything is like a river flowing to the ocean that is God. It is all leading to him. So one... Everything God does should lead us to worship him. Everything God has made, everything he does, everything should lead us to worship him. Two, all Bible study should end in worship. All Bible study should end in worship. Paul has just ended three of the hardest chapters he probably ever wrote through all of his writings. Hard both because he is grieving the fact that his Jewish brothers and sisters have rejected Jesus and are lost. And also hard because he wrote some really hard things to understand. Really difficult concepts. Things about election. Things about the inability for anyone to believe apart from hearing the gospel. Things about Israel being hardened against the gospel and yet God still being faithful in his word, not returning void. Hard concepts. He writes the things and he concludes in great humility and worship. And I think it is a great example for us that the purpose of theology, the purpose of doctrine, the purpose of spiritual knowledge is not merely to expand our understanding, but to set our hearts aflame in worship toward such a great God. For some of us, we love Bible study. Some of us, y'all have done every Bethmore Bible study there ever was. Some some of you love Bible study, which is good. You love going deep. You love learning new things. You love unpacking those things. You love listening to podcasts and sermons and reading books and all that, and that's great. 
But the point of reading the Bible is not to puff you up with knowledge. The point of the Bible is not to win an argument. The point is not to be right. The point is to fill you with the reality of who God is so that you would overwhelmingly respond in humble worship of a great God. But others of you, you don't so much love going deep You love the practical side. You love it when sermons are about how to have a better marriage or how to be a wise steward of your money or some practical thing, how to be a better parent. And while the Bible is full of wise counsel and advice, the Bible's primary aim is not to give you parenting advice. The the purpose of the Bible is not primarily to give you practical advice for daily life. The primary aim of the Bible is to lead us to wonder. To wonder and adore at the greatness of God. The stories of the Bible are not meant to give you heroes to emulate, but a savior to marvel and adore. We don't look at David and Goliath and go, man, let me go be like David. You look at David and Goliath and go, man, he's going to have a son who's going to really destroy our true giants. What a savior. If you read the Bible and it does not result in marveling and adoring and wondering at the vastness and beauty and majesty and wisdom and greatness of God, then you are either reading it wrongly or you've completely missed the point. Because the Bible should spur you to worship. Verse 34 says, For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who who understands the thought processes or the reasoning of God? Who can comprehend why does God do what he does? Why has he made the choices he has made? And and who who is who has given him counsel? Meaning, who who does God take advice from? Who is his confidant? Who is the person he's going to? Like, I'm really not sure what to do with all these guys. I was thinking about flooding the world and letting Noah get on this ark thing. What do you think about that? Gabriel? Like, what? You think that's a good idea? Who is giving God counsel? No one. When God is making a decision, he doesn't need to, to be counseled by anyone, he doesn't need advice from anyone. He in himself is all-sufficient, all-wise, all-knowing, all-perfect, and good in every way. He needs no help, no advice from anyone. But how often? How often have, have we thought, or at least felt, you know what? If I was in control of the cosmic universe, I might have done things a little differently. You know, like, maybe make three or four arcs. Let some more people get on it. You know, if we were in control of the world, we might have, we think maybe, maybe we'd have done it differently. How often is the tendency of our hearts inclined to feel like, even if we wouldn't say it, even just to feel that, you know, maybe we're a little smarter, wiser, maybe a little more fair, maybe a little more compassionate than God is? Like, because if I would definitely not have given myself a flat tire on the way to that, on to work that day. How often do we think, I'd have, I'd have just done it differently? I'd have done this and not that. What's amazing about this reality is that the very concepts, the very concepts of justice, of right and wrong, of fairness, of compassion, those things that we often think we know or understand or would do better than God, 
We learned them from God. And now sometimes we want to teach him how to do the very things he taught us. Having the right perspective about who we are compared to who God is, is the beginning of humility and the beginning of worship. When we say, God, I don't know why you allow innocent people to get blown up by evil regimes. I don't know why you allow horrible accidents to befall children. I don't know why you do the things you do, but I know you are good and I am not. When you say, I know that you are truly compassionate and I am not. That you are truly wise and I am not. I may not understand, but I know that you do and I trust your character. I trust you far more than I trust my own hands. We trust the God who saved the world through allowing his own son to be murdered. And if he can turn the tables on that, imagine how he can turn the tables on everything else. Verse 35 says, And who has ever given to God that he should be repaid? What does God owe us? On the one hand, we could say he owes us absolutely nothing. But on the other hand, he does owe us condemnation. He does rightfully owe us hell. That's what we deserve. The fact that we woke up this morning and took a breath and that our hearts continue to beat and there's not an invading army at our back door is simply by the grace and mercy and patience and goodness of God. Because we don't deserve to wake up and have our hearts beating and lung in our ears, lungs, air in our lungs. And the fact that we experience anything other than hell is a grace of God. And when you understand the gospel, when you understand the knowledge of our unworthiness, it doesn't cripple us. It doesn't paralyze us. It doesn't make us cower like an abused animal. No, our unworthiness only humbles us because in response to our unworthiness, God has shown us new mercies every morning. He's shown us grace and forgiveness at the incredible cost of his own son, taking the wrath we deserved. And so it doesn't cripple us. It only humbles us and shows us that God thought we were worth something to save us. You see, worship always begins with humility. The presence of God always exposes our sin, exposes our unworthiness. Because of the gospel, God doesn't allow us to hang our heads in shame and unworthiness, but he lifts our chins to embrace us as children and smiles over us. See, the third thing is that worship always begins with our humility. Worship begins with our humility. Paul's explosion of praise here is not flowing out of joyous circumstances. Paul has been grieving his Jewish brothers and sisters who have rejected the gospel. He is hurting. He is sad over this. And yet still, he worships and trusts and praises God. It reminds me of the book of Job. Job, a man who had everything you could ask for. And it was all taken from him by the evil one. His wealth, his family, his health. And what does he say? The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed is the name of the Lord. You see, if our worship is contingent upon our circumstances, then we will rarely ever worship. Worship must be rooted in the character of God, not in our circumstances. 
our worship has to start and be rooted and flow from who God is, the character of God, and not the current circumstances we find ourselves in. See, we are not worshiping the things God does for us. We are not worshiping the circumstances God spares us from or the good circumstances he puts us in. We are worshiping God for who he is, for his character, for his goodness and his love and his justice. We worship him because he is glorious and he's worthy of worship. Like Daniel in the lion's den. Or like Reshach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. We worship God not because he spared us pain and suffering, but because of who he is and what he's done for us in Christ and what he has promised to do in making the world new. You see, if worship is based on our circumstances, then our worship is not of God. But our worship is of what God does for us. It's for his thing, for his stuff. It's for what he does. We all watch football players score touchdowns and point to the sky thanking God for the touchdown. We all watch as cancer screens come back negative and people praise God. We all watch as you get accepted to the school of your dreams and you thank God and praise God for them. But what about when the receiver drops the pass? And loses the big game. What about when the doctor says you have six months to live? What about when you get rejection letters from every school you ever applied to? What then? Do we praise God even then? Does the football player at the press conference afterward still point to the sky and say praise God? Even though we lost the biggest game of our life? This week, the church in Ukraine has been an amazing example to us of what faithfully following Jesus looks like. Gathering together, worshiping and praying and singing and studying the word of God as missiles crash all around them. Risking their lives to care for the wounded, to protect the vulnerable, to feed those who are hungry. The one pastor I talked about who uh, took his family to safety only to return that he might continue shepherding his flock to serve his people. How unsearchable are your judgments and untraceable your ways, O oh God. If your joy in God is dependent on you understanding why God is doing something, then you will be miserable. Let me say that again. If your joy in God is dependent on you understanding why God is doing something, you will be miserable. But if you praise God based on the fact that he is always faithful no matter what you are going through in the moment, only then will you have real joy. We praise God not for the state of our circumstances, but because of who we know him to be, because of his character. And we know his character because of how he's acted throughout history. We know who God is because we've got a giant book with itty-bitty letters telling us all the ways of who God is throughout history. Throughout the Old Testament, when Israel went through some darker, troubling time, God would comfort them by revealing to them some name that embodied his character, right? When Israel was wandering in the wilderness, God revealed himself to be Jehovah Rapha, which means, uh, remember, Jehovah is kind of the funky way of saying I am instead of Yahweh. And he says, I am your healer. And he healed their diseases. When Jeremiah was discouraged by Israel's persistent unfaithfulness, and he said, how can we survive? We are so sinful. God said, Jehovah Sidkenu, I will be your righteousness. I am your righteousness. 
In Ezekiel's day, when the people of Israel felt scared and alone and besieged by enemies all around them, God said, Jehovah Shema, I am the God who is ever-present. When King David felt lost and confused with no friends left in the world, God revealed himself as Jehovah Ra, I am your shepherd. When Abraham was old and childless with no hope, God said, Jehovah Jireh, I am your provider. How God was all of these things to them was unclear because people in Israel still got sick and still died. How God was all of these things to all of them is unclear until Jesus showed up. Because when Jesus showed up, what did he say? Seven times at the book of John, I am. The same God who told Moses his name was I am in the burning bush. And he was fulfilling these promises. He was Jehovah Rapha, the God who healed their diseases. And not just through miracles, but in the cross, he dealt with our disease at the source. He bore our infirmities and carried our sorrows. He was wounded for our transgressions and buried for our iniquities. By his stripes, we are healed. Jesus was Jehovah Sidkenu. That God, our righteousness, became at the cross. God made us who knew no sin to be sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Through the Holy Spirit, he is Jehovah Shema, the God who tells us that he carries us in the palm of his hand and says, no one can ever pluck you out. I've got you. Jesus is our Jehovah Ra, the Lord, our shepherd, the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep and promises to never leave them. Jesus is Jehovah Jireh, our provider, the God who supplies all our needs so that we can say with Paul, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Jesus said, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. So do you want to know what the Father's heart is like? Well, it bears all the hurt and all the pain and all the justice and all the wrath and all the things we deserve. God bears it in his own body because he loves us. In the cross, we see that God who takes the darkest and foulest plans of men and turns them for our salvation. And he prays only. And Jesus is being tortured and he prays, Lord, forgive them for they know not what they do. Paul worshipped God when he was stoned and left for dead, when he was shipwrecked, when he was almost killed by a snake bite, and when he was thrown in prison facing a wrongful execution. Because worship is rooted in who God is, not in our present circumstances. Finally, let me say this. The last verse reminds us, for from him and through him and to him are all things. The last point is that worship is about God. Worship's not about me. It's not about my circumstances. It's not about my enjoyment. It's not about my favorite worship song. It's not about the tingly feelings I get when I sing. It's about him. Everything is about him. When I make it about me, I commit idolatry. This worship is about the one who is worth everything, and I'm not worth everything, but he is. And when we worship, understand what we're doing. We are not giving God glory. What gift do we have that we could give him, he writes? What glory do you have stored up that you might give to God to add to his glory? 
What glory is God lacking that he needs you to give him some more of? No, rather, God has all the glory he could ever have. He has it all. He has an infinite amount of glory. And so when we worship, we are simply recognizing what is already there. We are simply praising God for the glory he has, acknowledging and bringing attention and honor to the glory that God has forever. Worship is not adding glory to God. It is recognizing that God has all the glory already. Our job is to praise the one who is full of glory and to spread his glory, to spread his fame by spreading the gospel to the corners of the earth. So that there's this line throughout the whole Old Testament. So that the glory of God would cover the dry lands as the waters cover the seas. And as we spread the fame of Jesus, so does God's glory spread. That is, people who know about it. You see, all things came from God. He is the source of life in them. He is the purpose for which everything exists. Everything that exists, exists to point out his glory. So let us, those created in his image, the crown jewel of creation, join in with the rocks and join in with the trees and join in with those weird fish at the deepest parts of the ocean and let us join with the sunrises and give praise and glory and honor and worship to the only one who deserves it, the great I am, Jesus Christ, who was dead, buried, and raised forevermore. Amen? Pray together. Father, this morning we gather as your people, a people called by your name, a people who you have made and reserved and preserved and saved for yourself. And God, all that we do here at Fellowship, whether we're serving or giving or working or sharing or loving, whatever we do, singing, all that we do, God, would you help us to do it in making much of Jesus? To not make much of ourselves? To not draw attention to ourselves, but to draw attention to you and your glory. Father, help us to be a church that all that we do is for you. For for you and through you and to you are all things. And to you be glory forevermore. God, this morning, we desire that your glory would spread. That more people would know about it. And so if there is someone in this room this morning who does not know Jesus as King and Lord and Savior, this morning I want to invite you as we sing this song to come talk to me as I stand up here in the front and tell me about how you don't know Jesus but you want to and let me lead you and show you how you can do that because he's standing with arms wide open waiting for you to come. He knows your past, he knows your mistakes, he knows your doubts, he knows your pain and insecurity and he's saying, come child, let me bring you home. This morning, come and know the glory that God has and make him your king. Or maybe you're here this morning and you just need to stand and sing. Sing a little louder, maybe a little bit more off key. Maybe sing, maybe raise your hand, maybe sit and bow and contemplate. But maybe you need to, this next song, really worship. Because you understand you are completely undeserving and God and his grace is worth everything. And you don't need to be worried about lunch right now. You need to be worried about giving God the praise and recognition of his glory that he deserves. 
for the breath in your lungs this morning and for the salvation of your soul. If you're here this morning and you need to pray about anything at all, I'm up here and would love to pray with you. If you need to come and talk about what it means to follow Jesus, I would love to talk with you about that. Or just stand and let's sing our with the loudest we can with all of our hearts. God, give us the strength to do this however you would call us. In Christ's name we pray all those people said. Stand together.